On December 26, 2004, a magnitude 9.1 earthquake hit off the coast of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. The earthquake was the third largest ever recorded, lasting nearly 10 minutes and raised tsunamis up to 100 feet high. Along the coasts of the Indian Ocean, the tsunamis killed nearly 228,000 people in 14 countries. With the largest loss of life and massive loss of infrastructure, the Indonesian city of Banda Aceh was particularly hard hit. Subsequent tectonic plate stresses brought about a magnitude 8.7 earthquake on the 28th of March, 2005, near Nias Island, compounding the destruction from the tsunami only three months earlier. In between these two events, in early 2005, Rear Admiral Bill McDaniel arrived with the USNS Mercy Hospital ship to assist in the relief effort. This is his story. I'm Ivy Tara Blair, and the book is Faces of the Tsunami. Chapter 3 You know, I have delayed trying to write this book because I got, we all got, so emotionally involved in this effort, in the plight of the Indonesian people, in our own very shaky mortality, in everything. At this moment, having renewed my photos and attempting to even remotely explain what we did, what we felt there, I am overwhelmed by emotion. And this is years later. Several months ago, some friends asked me to read some of the emails aloud that I had written and sent out. You will eventually see most of them here. I started reading and within minutes put the papers down and apologized. I could not read them aloud. I couldn't see through the tears. The fits and starts of getting such an effort underway as we were doing were frustrating. The initial resistance was from the people from all nations ashore, angry because we were so late, then sure we were going to try to come in and suck up all the glory. There was tragedy enough to go around. Then their acceptance as we steadfastly continued to offer our tremendous capabilities to them, but only if they needed them. Our commitment was to fall in behind them and contribute what we could to the effort. Fairly quickly they came to understand this, though there were exceptions, as there always are. Doctors Without Borders do a wonderful job worldwide. They needed refrigerators to store vaccines in, and there were no spares available ashore. However, aboard our 1,000-bed trauma center, we had huge walk-in freezers, which could have handled anything. I offered these up to a representative of Doctors Without Borders one day, and she apologetically told me they would not work with any military, and especially from the U.S. Does this make sense? Not to me. When we have a crisis situation like this, perhaps Doctors Without Borders would be better served to get over it. My team lived aboard the USS Abraham Lincoln for the first two weeks or so, before transitioning to another of the amphibious ships, USS Essex, for a day or two, then to USNS Mercy when she arrived. 
We were treated royally by the staffs of both ships, who had been working on ending hours in the month they had been off the coast of Sumatra. They were eager to hand off this effort to us so they could get on with their cruise, a return home after eight months in the Gulf. For some reason, the Marine Amphibious Group was assigned to oversee our small four-ship armada for the first eight days we were there. I'm not sure why, probably because they had been there since early January, and were to provide an overlap and impart some badly needed local knowledge to us that we needed to get our jobs done. That made sense so far as it went. However, keep in mind that my advanced team had been ashore since about 22 January, and by the time Mercy arrived on 3 February, the hospitals ashore realized that the only chance of keeping a number of their patients alive was for us to take them off their hands immediately. We had the specialists, the diagnostic and treatment equipment, and certainly room enough. So those medical personnel ashore were eagerly awaiting the arrival of helicopters on 4 February to start ferrying critically ill patients seaward. That didn't happen. The Marines came aboard, and the very competent Marine General immediately called the senior medical staff together and explained that there was a right way to do our mission, and his staff was going to teach that way to us. They did that, and rightly so. However, as dedicated as they may have been to helping us do our job, our only real task ultimately consisted of seeing patients, which we were restricted from doing for several days. Why? I'm not sure. I think they were eagerly looking forward to getting home and they would be allowed to head that way after overseeing us for eight days. They had been working hard for a month and their helicopter crews and machines alike were well used and in need of rest. Fine and dandy, but we had not been working. All the medical staff had been riding the ship and taking part in endless exercises, which are all part of our required and needed training, but lead you to want to get to the real thing as quickly as possible. Plus, I'd been going ashore daily for almost two weeks, along with several clinicians planning which patients we needed to evacuate first in order to save as many as possible. We were ready to see patients, regardless of the paperwork. What we got was education, repeatedly, and for four straight mornings, excuses that our helicopters were not in a ready status yet. We did have some outstanding Marines working with us, trying hard to get us functioning. I think it was just inertia and fatigue that caused the others to delay actual movement of our staff and patients. What they clearly did not recognize was that their delaying tactics, no matter how valid their reasoning, were allowing patients to die ashore. On the third evening after Mercy's arrival, one of the sharper ship's docks who had been going ashore with me came over. Admiral, I'm embarrassed. I just don't want to go back to shore again until we are truly ready to bring patients aboard. I just can't bear to have them look at us and ask why we aren't honoring our promises. I agreed. On the fourth morning, I was informed that, once again, our helicopters were not ready. Now, I had no official place in the chain of command in this effort, but I did have a few ways that I might be able to push things. The foremost factor working for me was having Admiral Duran tell me I was in charge of the success of the mission, make it happen, and he would back me. In the military, when the senior ranking officer in the Pacific tells you he has your back, it does help matters a tad. And even though I was retired, I was still the senior officer in the area. 
Retired or not, we all know who was around. I had served with the Marines in Vietnam and had tremendous respect for them. However, as any Marine will tell you, it helps to be able to speak their language. My Marine pilots in Vietnam had taught me Marine talk well. So I approached the senior Marine assigned to us, an 06, who was all smiles. He knew who I was, though we'd never spoken. As noted before, I was not part of the official chain of command, and did not sit in on most meetings. Colonel, where are helos? Doc, I'm sorry, but we're trying to keep this realistic. The two helos assigned to you are undergoing some mechanical things. We'll get there. Relax. Colonel, let me explain something to you. He started to speak. Colonel, don't say anything. This is a monologue, not a dialogue. Do you understand what happens every day you pull this crap? People die every single day. People that we have evaluated the day before and have solemnly sworn to take aboard this very elegant trauma center and try to save. Colonel, I don't care if your folks are tired. That's not my problem. My problem is that you are not giving us the support we have to have to do this job. We've done all the paperwork. It's long past time we started saving lives. So, here's what I suggest you do. Call one of your working helos over from your ship and get off. Mercy, don't come back until you are ready to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. I must admit to using somewhat saltier language than represented here. I love the Marines and think they are the greatest fighting force we have, so effective communication is essential when dealing with them. The colonel had turned a little white during my monologue. I gave him no time to attempt an answer, but turned and walked away. He called in a helo and left the ship. Meanwhile, I looked up the ship's master, a Naval Academy graduate of 1974, a wonderful man with great common sense, then in the military sea lift command, and a civilian. We discussed the situation as I attempted to calm down, but I was really, really pissed. We looked up the poor air operations officer, a lieutenant commander from the amphibious group, and talked with him. He was in near tears when we left. The master and I sat in his office and had coffee. He made great coffee, and I love coffee at any time. I excused myself and went across the hall to my room. I thought about it a moment, then composed an email to the deputy CINC, Commander-in-Chief Pacific, number two admiral in the chain of command, in Hawaii. I asked him not to necessarily act on my email. I was just using him to express my frustration. However, I did point out to him that I had fulfilled my part of the job. I had found patience and had acquired the acceptance from the international community for our presence. The problem we were running into went directly back to the promise that had been made to me. If I would find the patients, we would receive the support needed to care for them. I strongly suggested that if we could not get immediate helo support, we should withdraw mercy over the horizon so it would not be visible from shore. No sense in courting further embarrassment. The DCNIC was a smart man. He got the message loud and clear, and not only got it, was probably as irritated as I was. Early the next morning, we had more helicopter support than we could ever totally use, and got to start our real work in Banda Aceh, saving lives and making a difference. 
Below is a report I sent to senior officials shortly before this. SITREP 5, February, Banda Aceh Well, things are looking up in Banda Aceh. After a day of some turmoil with CONOPS, plan of operations, approval process, most of the staff had become resigned to the likelihood that we would be unable to see patients until early in the week. Morale on board is poor. However, with the restriction to our activities being that we could not engage in patient care, there were still lots of possible ways we could assist the people of Banda Aceh. We sent two helos in today with a total of 20 people. Unfortunately, due to diversions of one of the helos and mechanical problems with the others, several meetings were missed. However, we did accomplish quite a lot. We have been assured that all attempts will be made to keep the helos up and running and on time. Some general problems were identified. As usual, the biggest problem was reliable communications. It is frequently impossible to call from the ship to the shore and vice versa. Just the vagaries of this part of the world. We also had problems with our two Iridium phones. It is mandatory that we greatly improve our comms capabilities, and this is being worked aggressively. I expect things to improve tomorrow. Having adequate comms capabilities is both a logistics and a safety issue. We hope to soon send every team out with an Iridium phone. In addition, we are still struggling with manifest changes, which personnel to send in, but that is also a learning evolution, and I expect will smooth out quickly. 1. The nursing team leader met with the Indonesian nurses at the University Hospital, Abedin Hospital, using one of our translators for communications. The translators were invaluable in our overall effort. They established a list of equipment and supplies needed in the emergency room. There is a request for six to ten nurses to help supplement the current staff during the day shift. We will work toward meeting that need immediately. 2. Medical repair technicians checked over a non-operative mobile x-ray unit and had it fixed and working properly after a short while. They identified a number of repairs needed in the university hospital and will travel in daily working on them, greatly improving the basic operating systems of the hospital. All the hospitals in Banda Aceh have a shortage of oxygen, and we brought four oxygen tanks here from the Indonesians, Germans, and Australians. Our engineers have modified the valves so we can fill them and they can be used back in their facilities. There is a surplus of bottles. We will fill 30 to 40, which will suffice for a couple of weeks at a time. One of the big items is a cold chain room for handling and storing vaccines. The Australians had fixed the refrigerator at Abedin Hospital, and our techs will work on the transport boxes tomorrow. They examined the anesthesia machines, finding them operative, but missing many of the accessory items. They are low on consumables, many of which we can replace. 3. Two engineers from Mercy went in and checked out their oxygen bottles, medical vacuum pumps, and air compressors. They reported that the damage done by the mud, up to 8 feet deep, was immense, but they are returning tomorrow with an electrician, a plumber, and another technician to work on this equipment. Some equipment will be brought back to the ship for more definitive repair. The transformer room is full of mud, and we are working with the Germans trying to fix it. There is a need for calcium hypochlorite for the water reservoir, which we can supply. 4. A pharmacist and pharmacy tech went in to look at their pharmacy. The original one had been totally destroyed, and both pharmacists died in the tsunami. 
There are four women working there to attempt to clean up a storeroom, but they have no pharmacy training. The first thing that is needed for the storeroom conversion is construction of shelves. Project Hope will contribute the money needed for construction, and the Australians will hire some local contractors they use to come in and build the all-new shelving in the pharmacy. Our pharmacy personnel will assist in the design and will categorize and stock the pharmacy once that is done. They will go back in tomorrow to hire the contractor. 5. Our outreach team got an extremely late start due to helo problems missing two meetings. They also had comms problems during the day. They went to UNICEF and worked with the CDC folks who are working there and identified several items needing attention. There appears to be a dengue outbreak south of Banda, and the local folks are investigating. When the time comes, our folks may travel to Simulu Island with them to work this issue. The IDP, Internal Displaced Persons Camps, need risk and threat assessments for water and diseases, and they will work with the Australians who have been covering the area on this issue. 6. Mental Health The head of UNICEF here, Claudia Husbeth, met with our mental health team for two hours going over problems that need addressing. She is a phenomenally well-organized person and a pleasure to work with. One of the areas they will be addressing is the 15,000 displaced children in the area. There are also 20 child care centers in the area whose function is to try to return those children to their families, if they still exist. Another area requiring mental health outreach is the schools, where it is estimated that 50% of the students are dead or missing. They will initiate programs for the traumatized teachers and children. They will facilitate social support for the teachers and will assist the Indonesian NGOs with current concepts. Family support will also be initiated and reestablished from the ground up. A troubling area is child sexual exploitation. It is estimated that 700 children have been abducted from the area since the tsunami. They are trying to come up with programs to assist in this area. The NGOs are requesting crisis and grief counseling for themselves, which we will begin this week. 7. Dental needs are paramount in this area. The university has 10 dental chairs and one provider. We will initiate assistance using their chairs. Our dental tech repaired their air compressor today. 8. Our recon and future ops team attended the UN representative meeting and the civil military meeting. They feel that transportation and logistics support are connecting well, but feel again that we need a permanent detachment ashore to coordinate with these folks and attend the coordination meetings we cannot get to now. This has been a disapproved item in the past, but we need to revisit it. Tomorrow looks to be a busy day. We have a senior military official coming for a visit. We also have two waves of visitors to the ship. These will be the leaders of all the big NGOs and UN agencies in town, as well as USAID, the leaders of the hospitals and the German hospital ship, representatives of the Ministry of Health, and representatives of TNI, Indonesian military. Pak Budi, the head of the FEMA equivalent, could not come tomorrow, but may come on Monday. We will host these individuals in two groups for two hours each group. In addition, we are sending three teams to Banda Aceh. 1. The hospital team consists of dentists, dental techs, optometrists and techs, three Project Hope nurses, communication technicians, a supply officer, and two Navy nurses. 
Two, outreach personnel will go in to continue to coordinate their efforts with their counterparts at UNICEF. Three, communications folks are going to aggressively work the comms problems. In addition, the engineers and biomedical technicians are returning to continue their efforts to repair the damaged equipment in the university hospital. We will, hopefully, start moving patients to the ship on Monday. The commanding officer of the Mercy Hospital met with the vice president of Indonesia at the university hospital and had a very cordial discussion with him. The CEO again expressed our sadness at what had happened here. He reported that the VP was extremely cordial and may wish to visit Mercy at a later date. Finally, as is known by all addressees, we got word early in the afternoon that the GOI, Government of Indonesia, had approved our CONOPS, Concept of Operations, resulting in very many happy faces and personnel aboard Mercy. Many thanks to all who made this possible. W.J. McDaniel As I have noted, lots of moving parts to this operation. I casually passed over our efforts to repair medical equipment ashore above. Before Mercy arrived, I had visited the International Red Cross Hospital, a many-tented affair, and toured it with the commanding officer, a Norwegian colonel. He had explained to me that his instructions were to work independently of the U.S. military and USNS Mercy. Politics, you know. Political correctness, a four-letter word if I have ever heard one so he would be unable to cooperate with us actively. I acknowledged his explanation and then asked how his equipment was holding out in this hot, humid climate. He noted that none of his X-ray units were functional, and they were the most advanced diagnostic equipment he had. The next day I returned with several of our X-ray techs and medical repair techs. I explained to him that I totally understood his inability to cooperate with us, but wondered if my folks could look at his X-ray equipment. Not knowing how to refuse gratefully, he mumbled an acceptance. Within about four hours, all his machines were working. I then told him that while appreciating the politics of his position, unofficially we would always be available to help him if he had problems. He had seen the incredible value of working together already and indicated that we should continue to do so. I assured him that we could do so, and the ICRC became our most valuable partner in the relief effort. This was a great example of the problems we face when responding to international crisis situations. Our capabilities are always greater than anyone else has. We can always do an outstanding job, by ourselves. We aren't so good at playing nicely with others. Not that we are rude. We just by and large ignore them and do our own thing, which, as noted, is superb work. However, if we really want to continue building true international support and cooperative ventures with other responders, we have to learn to communicate better than we ordinarily do. This endeavor was marked by the foresight of two four-star admirals in the Pacific who foresaw this possibility and attempted to find a solution. I would like to say that we have continued this cooperative venture in subsequent disasters. We have not done so. We continue our overwhelming effective response, but do not reach out very much to other international players present. Too much effort? Not enough payoff? Not really needed? Well, those decisions are part of our national strategy and are way above my pay grade. I will say that it really does not take much effort to make the transition to cooperative partners versus those big guys on the block who do not notice us. This has been Chapter 3 of Faces of the Tsunami. 